This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to dig into the culture from time to time. Hangler helps us with these. We've taken a look at some of Lisa Ling's shows. What's Lisa Ling up to, we call it. She does these pieces, sometimes terrific, and sometimes we just don't know what the heck's going on. And we like to take a look for you, and we look at storytellers. We tell stories, but sometimes we look at other storytellers and see what stories they're telling, and perhaps why. And one of the storytellers we wanted to dig into is Linda Ellerby. Linda Ellerby over at Nick News. And this is news for kids. And we wanted to bring you, well, up to speed on some of the things that are happening over there at Nick. And uh, Linda Ellerby is an Emmy Award winning news magazine uh, producer. And the show on Nickelodeon is geared toward children and teenagers. And the reporting on Nick News Topical issues, including the environment, politics, entertainment. It's the longest-running kids' news show in television history. The first episode launched in 1992. Here's a sample of some of their news shows. Uh, Animal Rights or Wrongs, Coming Out, The Border Kids, Crime and Too Much Punishment, Title IX and Why Do You Care, which discusses gender issues. Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, Lies Parents Tell You, and What's the Deal with Fracking? By the way, I'm not sure why kids need to be uh, proselytized to either side, left or right. Um, but Nick News, um, this is what they do sometimes. And there was one particular show that caught my little girl's attention. She was just scrolling, th- scrolling through the channel. She said, Dad, they're doing this show on Cuba. And, well, you got to watch it. And so I did, and we tracked it down. Not without really working hard to track it down, but ask. Hengler to do something, and, well, he'll keep trying until, well, the millennium fades. And we tracked it down, and here's what we got. The show opened with the Cuban children sharing their thoughts of U.S.-Cuban relationships. I would like to have peace between the two countries. I would tell the kids of the United States that Cuba is a good country. I feel really happy because I feel it's going to get better between the two countries. I think there will be good changes in Cuba. We are so close. We should be having a better relationship. Far, not so terrible, right? I mean, come on, we, we, we want to have the two countries get along. We're not really getting into who gets along with whom for what reasons or what really happened between the two countries. Let's not even argue about that. It's fine. No problem so far. Here's Nick News host Linda Ellaby and her opening remarks. This is Nick News with Linda Ellerby. So close and yet so far away. The kids of Cuba. Now, here is Linda Ellerby. The island country of Cuba is just 90 miles off the coast of the state of Florida. That is close, which is tricky, because officially the U.S. is a capitalist society, and officially Cuba is a communist society. And so the two countries have been enemies for more than 50 years. But the world changes, and recently President Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro 
have begun to work to find ways to bring the two countries closer together. What will it be like to be a kid in Cuba tomorrow? Begin with this. What's it like to be a kid in Cuba today? We went to Cuba to find out. You know, still nothing really terrible. I mean, yeah, sounds nice. I mean, it's a nice little island country. No one points out that you, you weren't allowed to leave that little island country. Yeah, just a small point. You weren't allowed to leave. Nice little island country. A prison. A prison, but not, not included in that. That's okay. Kids are watching. You don't want to frighten them about a prison colony run by dictators. You know, the, the countries just have a different idea about, you know, how to, how to allocate capital. On to the next. Let's see how Nickelodeon presents what it's like to be a kid in the communist country of Cuba. I'm proud of being Cuban. For me, Cuba is happiness, joy. It's everything. The first thing that comes to my mind is patriotism and how Cuba helps other countries. What I like about being Cuban is that we could have any kind of problem and we come out of it with joy and music. Instead of staying home and being sad, we come out into the streets. Cuban people are always joyful people. They're always happy. Cuba is an underdeveloped country, but it's a free country. Here in Cuba, the schools, everything is free, and all the kids have the same rights for everything. I like that I can have medicine above all and medical attention without having to pay for any costs. The best part about growing up here in Cuba is the sports. When I grow up, I want to be a great baseball player. What I like about Cuba is Cuban music. That is what makes me feel Cuban. What I like the most about Cuba is its landscapes and its beaches. The most beautiful thing about Cuba is the dance. For me, the most beautiful part of Cuba is the people. Hey, look, the dance, the people, the music, absolutely. But the kids, one kid was talking about free medicine. What kid says that? So that means somebody got that kid to say, oh, what I love about Cuba is the free medical care. Yeah, that's what a kid would say, free medical care. And the freedom. And the freedom, of course, because that's what you think of when you think of Cuba, freedom, and also rights, human rights, because that's what you think of when you think about Cuba. By the way, Linda Ellerby had done, a, had, had done a show, remember, about parents lying to their kids. And here, Linda Ellerby is lying to ours mm. and using Cuban kids to do it. When we come back, more of this. Well, I don't want to characterize it for you. I just want you to keep listening because it gets really more interesting. And by the way, if they'd focused on the music, on the dance, on the people, my goodness, the Cuban people are great people. But this is something different. You'll hear why and why we think so and why maybe you want to keep track of Linda Ellerby's work at Nick News. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're, we're digging into one particular Nick News, one that came out in the not-too-distant past on Cuba. It was brought to my attention by my little girl. And Nick News, of course, is on Nickelodeon, and that's where millions and millions of parents park their kids to watch things like SpongeBob. And so what we like to do for families across America is, you know, sort of pull out some of these shows that maybe we're not watching, but our kids are watching, and just bring to your attention some of the things that are going on there. And we're, we're trying not to be political. This is not a Republican or Democrat show, as you, as you have come to know. But, you know, sometimes cultural stories like this need to be brought to light. And we celebrate particularly music and the arts. And my goodness, no one here is questioning the decency, the, the brilliance of the Cuban people. It's Linda Ellaby's reporting about the government and some of the things that go on in Cuba and all that's not mentioned in this piece. So let's keep going because these were this was not a, a, a show produced by the government of Cuba. It was produced by Nickelodeon for our children. Nick News host Linda Ellaby poses her next question to the Cuban children. But what are some of the things Cuban kids would change about their country if they could? Havana is a beautiful place. What I would change about Cuba, about Havana, it's dirty places. I would like to have more clean places. Like my neighborhood, in every corner I find a lot of garbage on the street. And a lot of people don't understand that that's a bad thing. And that's why we have so many diseases in Havana. The streets, they're in really bad shape. And there are some buildings that are in bad shape and need to be restored. Above all, I would like for us to be able to travel to many more places and to travel to other countries that aren't my own as well. I would like to have the chance to go easily to the United States. I think people living in the United States... Their lives might be a little bit different, but I think I would like to stay here in Cuba. Well, that's, you know, you could unpack that and spend an hour. I'd love to talk to those kids and ask them some more questions. By the way, the, the dirty streets, the, the, the terrible infrastructure, well, this is just a part of a communist government. It can't unleash the potential of its people. But one of the kids said, I'd like to travel to more places and other countries. Well, maybe they can travel inside Cuba. But they can't leave. And you didn't hear any of these kids directly say, I cannot leave. And one of the young kids had a chance to go easily to the United States. Right now, the only way they go is floating on a, on a raft, risking death. And by the way, hundreds of thousands of Cubans have done that to escape the prison camp. But let's go on, because Linda doesn't talk about that with our children. Our children, the American children. Let's go back to another question from Linda's Linda Ellaby and her Nickelodeon and news Nick News special, which she then answers herself. And note Ellerby's view of history. She says that the Cuban government before the communist takeover was run by a totalitarian dictator. There is a lot of rewritten history in this next clip. Take a close listen. How did Cuba and the U.S. become enemies in the first place? Cuba was run by a dictator supported by the United States until 1959. 
when Cuban rebels led by Fidel Castro overthrew that dictator, promising freedom and equality for all. The rebels also took over all businesses in Cuba owned by companies in the U.S. Castro then had a choice between negotiating a new alliance with the United States or joining with the communist-run Soviet Union, America's most powerful enemy. Castro chose the Soviet Union and communism, a system that aims to replace private property with public ownership. The U.S. retaliated by shutting off diplomatic relations with a communist Cuba and enacting an embargo, which meant it was illegal for U.S. companies to do business with Cuba or for individual Americans to spend money in Cuba or even to visit there. From that point, a wall existed between the two countries, a wall much bigger than the 90 miles of water that separates them. Until now. She could have added there was a slight difference with that wall. Americans could go anywhere they wanted but to countries that were enemy countries. In Cuba, you couldn't go anywhere. Just a slight difference, Linda. You could have just, you could have helped there a little bit. So next, Linda Ellerby asks the Cuban children about the U.S. embargo. My reaction now that Cuba could have a relationship with the United States, it was something like, yay, finally. The embargo has been affecting us a lot. The embargo makes it hard to buy food or medicine. The necessities we need. We don't live in the same way. We don't have the same things. Maybe they get to live in big houses, beautiful houses, and we don't get to live in these kind of houses. I think if the people in the United States change their opinion about Cuba and they change the embargo, maybe the relationship can get better. I think things are going to change pretty soon. I think tourists are coming to Cuba now. I think we are going to improve our economy. I would like for the relationship to get better because both countries would benefit not only economically but also culturally. Again, not so terrible. I mean, look, and it's good hearing from the voices of the people. Uh, but the implication, I think, by at least a couple of them, is that the reason Cuba is poor is because of the embargo. Right. And that's like saying the reason North Korea is poor is because of America. This is because of communism. And communism does not create wealth. It may create many other things, but it simply doesn't create wealth. And, and going back to that last clip, she was talking about the totalitarian dictator that was before Cuba came in with the revolution under Che and Castro. She didn't say that there was more freedom under that dictator than there was under the new dictator. She never mentions Castro or those guys as being dictators. No, no. that's And that is that is another key element. And again, you're listening to Greg, and this is his piece, and and he caught it and uh, and put it together. And now it's time for Nickelodeon to let other Cuban children with their communist educations give American children a lesson on the Cuban communist revolution and what socialism is really all about. One of the most beautiful things about Cuba is the Museum of the Revolution. The revolution is what occurred on January 1st, 1959 called the Triumphant Revolution, where we gained freedom thanks to Fidel and Raul Castro with Che and others. 
They created history and will remain in the hearts of the Cuban people. Bueno, socialismo. Socialism is something where you help others the way Cuba does with other countries. For instance, we're sending Cuban doctors to fight Ebola, a global sickness. It is an epidemic and we have to destroy it. When I think of Cuba, I think of liberty, peace, and tranquility in the world and hope that Cuba and the United States keep a friendly relationship. The relationship can get better with time. The relationship depends on if they compromise. Wow. You don't know what to say. One of the kids sounds like he was reading right off the communist talking points. What kid says, what kid would ever say, my favorite thing in Cuba is the Revolution Museum? Yeah, yeah, that's what kids love. I mean, my, uh, the one museum I could understand a kid saying they love, the Museum of Natural History, because they're all of these animals stuffed. But a museum of history, a kid, give me a break. And uh, one kid said that what he loves about Cuba is its liberty. And you don't even know where to start and why Linda Ellerby is doing this and doing it and letting kids tell these lies to our kids without mentioning that these kids, everything they say is screened, filtered, censored, and that people go to jail in this country for saying otherwise. They go to prison. And I don't know what you're thinking, Linda Ellerby, but we're going to continue to watch what you do. But let's continue with this show because it just gets more entertaining. And we're going to do that on the back end. And Hank a great job on this. And folks, we do this because sometimes you're busy. And we love talking about the culture. We celebrate the arts, artists. And by the way, we celebrate the Cuban people, their artists, their music. The Buena Vista Social Club, we'll do a half hour on it. It's so terrific. Now, we're talking about ways of thinking about government. And we're talking about not socialism here. This is not socialism. This is communism. And this is dictatorial communism. Communism celebrated on Nickelodeon. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the music of the Buena Vista Social Club. And we're playing that music, well, because it's just terrific music. It was a terrific documentary. And we're talking about Linda Ellerby's reporting in Nick News. And this piece was not put together by the government of Cuba, though it sounds like it. And that's fine if it was for the people of Cuba. I got, look, you, you, you live a certain way, you pick your government, and so be it. But Linda Ellerby was channeling this into Nick News for our children to consume. My little girl saw it. She told me about it. I didn't catch much of it. I went to Hengler and said, Greg, run this down. And let's play that last clip again, because Hengler was chomping on the bit to, to talk about it. Let's hear it again. When I think of Cuba, I think of liberty, peace, and tranquility in the world, and hope that Cuba and the United States keep a friendly relationship. The relationship can get better with time. The relationship depends on if they compromise. 
And Greg, your thoughts on that last piece? Yeah, if they compromise, um, this comes back to it's a freedom issue. You know, which country is free to compromise? Who, which country is free to do what they want to do? You know, is, is the Cuban government allowing the Cuban people to have the freedom to do what they want to do? Who needs to compromise? Are we the ones who are saying, you need to stay inside your country, you cannot leave? Who needs to compromise? Yeah, and, and that the kid was using a word compromise, it just, it just sounded so scripted, and it was just unfortunate. By the way, the kid, that, that was not the kid's voice who was speaking. The kid's voice who was speaking was speaking in the native tongue. That was the translation, so... You know, who knows what was going on in that translation? And again, the only reason we're talking about this, this is not a Republican show, a Democrat show. We love talking about the culture. And Nickelodeon, my goodness, SpongeBob, we don't need to say anymore. Kids love it. They've loved it for generations. And yet up comes Nick News. And I don't think the parents are watching carefully. And I wasn't. My little girl came in and told me about this. And she's pretty smart. And she said, Dad, something's not right. These kids are talking nonsense. And they're not even talking the way kids talk. They're talking the way adults talk, and it, adults' words are being thrown and put in the kids' mouths, is how my, my kid put it. Nobody knows this better than kids. And so we, we wanted to tell this quick story because that kid also mentioned liberty. He said what he thought of when he thought about Cuba was liberty. And Linda Ellerby just shouldn't, she can't let stuff like that out in Nick News. It's just, it's just wrong. So Alex, well, he found a, a little passage I wanted to share with you from a book by Miguel Fernandez, a book called Humbled by the Journey. And he now lives in America and is a healthcare investor. But listen to this story and tell me if you think of the word liberty. Quote, Christmas 1964 was a day I would never forget. I was 12 years old. My sister was 10. And our lives were utterly transformed that day. A day traumatic and ultimately formative. It wasn't Santa Claus who came that Christmas to our modest apartment. It was the cadre, the bearded troopers, the enablers of Fidel Castro. My dad was not a politician. After years of hard work, he owned his own business, and he loved his family and freedom. One day they came to his shop and they said, Mario Antonio Fernandez, give us your keys. You will now work for the government. He gave them the keys. He had no choice, but he said, I will not work for you. That was choice. Even though he knew an appeal would be futile, he went through the process. Three of the five people on the appeals board, known as a people's tribunal, were his customers. He stood before this appeals board and told the members, I concur with you that there are a lot of whores in the world and a few in this town, and here are the names of three in this town. Then he took out the receipts of the three people on the tribunal who owed him money. That shows you the backbone he had and still has. We were, to put it mildly, invited to leave Cuba. A military truck drove up, and my parents and sister and I were hustled into it. And that's what you think of. And one last story, and by the way, listen to our half hour on Armando Valadares who won the Beckett Canterbury Award for his denial to basically tell the world and at least tell the Cuban officials that Fidel was, in essence, his god. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it, and so he sat in a prison for a good part of his adult life. And that's not exactly liberty. And Linda never at once tells that story. Here's one more. 
and then we'll get back to the reporting in Nick News. But this is some of the reporting you did not get. And this is from the National Review, and, well, it's from one of our favorite writers, Jay Nordlinger, a rebel, artist, and sometime political prisoner from Cuba. Article 39 of the Cuban Constitution states that, quote, artistic creativity is free as long as its content is not contrary to the revolution. That's in the Constitution, slightly different than our First Amendment. Danilo Maldonado Machado, a.k.a. El Sexto, well, he doesn't obey. He is a Cuban street artist and human rights activist. He has been in and out of prison many times. In 2014, he took two pigs and painted names on them, Fidel and Raul. By the way, in America, that gets you an art, an artist award and contracts. GW and Cheney. I mean, you're, you're, you, got an, you got an exhibit in Soho. He was referring to his country's brother dictators, of course, and he had been inspired by Animal Farm. These pigs weren't a random choice. And that's Orwell's novella of 1945. Obviously, this act earned him a prison sentence. In 2015, he received the Vaclav Havel Prize for Creative Dissent in absentia, for once again he was in prison. The prize is named after the late Czech playwright and democracy hero and is given at the Oslo Freedom Forum. Linda Ellaby could have found that story, and it deserved to be in Nick News. But no, instead, let's go back to this intrepid reporting on Nick News. And Linda Ellaby continues educating our children on the realities of living in a communist and socialist state. Take a listen. I am proud of living in a united country, a place where everyone helps each other. In my opinion, socialism is a community where we share however we can, where we all have the same rights, the same responsibilities, and where we take on the same tasks regardless of our rankings. I am part of the Communist Youth Union. Being part of the Communist Youth Union means that when we reach adulthood, we can become part of the government. I feel like a student who is recognized because you have to be a student who fulfills all of his responsibilities and that knows and recognizes when something is wrong and who fights against what is wrong. What's amazing is what he said was so wrong. And yet he's saying he's fighting for what's wrong. I mean, he's being trained to become a part of the apparatus of the state that does things like, well, what they just did to that Cuban street artist. Yeah, and he says that they all have the same rights and responsibilities. I would like them to unpack that. What are those rights? Yeah, what are the rights? Is it, you know, what kind of, do you get freedom in those rights? And again, this is Linda Ellerby's report on Cuba. And again, the only reason we're talking about it is Ellerby reaches a lot of our children. And we're not always watching our kids when they're watching Nick News on Nickelodeon. We just figure, oh, it's SpongeBob and... We'll give them a few minutes and, and, and look what happens. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the piece even further because it just keeps going. It just keeps going and going. And again, it's the kids that are being used as props here that's really so disturbing. And again, my little kid, my girl, my 11-year-old figured it out in a nanosecond that it was nonsense. But we want to bring you more of this. This is Lee Habib. 
This is Our American Stories, unpacking Linda Ellaby's Cuban Report. story. We're spending the hour on Linda Ellerby's report on Cuba on Nick News. And this may make you watch Nick News a bit more carefully and suspiciously because so many of our children are parked in front of Nickelodeon. And for good reason, it's great programming on this show. And this could have been too. It's great to hear from the voices of the kids. But add some more depth, Linda, and give some context to these children who are listening here in America who may not have the the, 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 the smarts or the or the or the family background to know that something funny was going on here. My kid has been around a lot of, of political discussions, a lot of cultural and social discussions, and a lot of discussions about human freedom, which we talk about on this show a lot. And that doesn't have a political label. And so let's pick up where we left off. Nick News and Linda Ellerby continue educating well, all of us with this report, and we hear from a young man who shares a couple of things that he wishes were different in what has so far been portrayed as a very free communist Cuba. Of Cuba's future, I think we have to better ourselves more, but we are doing so a little bit at a time by all that our government is doing to help. I would like to have a little bit more access to the internet because I would like to have access to information, like information about jobs or music. I could look up history, also to be informed about everything that's happening in the world. But I think that to be in front of a computer the entire day could be damaging. And, you know, what can you say? So being, being told about the perils of something you can't see is just typical of dictatorships. And by the way, we know we know why Raul and Fidel Castro don't want these kids on the Internet. And the kid continues to mention, like every other kid here, how the government's going to help them, and yet it's the very government that won't let them on the Internet. And by the way, bless Linda Ellaby's heart. She did let that out. So, you know, my kid's going, they can't watch the Internet? Why, Dad? Oh, that's some story to unpack, Linda, isn't it? But she didn't unpack it. Not at all. What news story would be complete without a section covering the art of recycling in the communist country of Cuba? Here is Linda Ellerby. Cuba's art is everywhere and, it seems, by everyone, including the art of creating new ways of helping one another and new concepts like the art of recycling. 
Me llamo Lázaro. My name is Lázaro. I live in central Havana. This is my house, and this is Recycling with Art and News. The project has been going on for four years. The kids, they come here, they interact with other kids, and they get educated. And they learn how to recycle, which is my work and what my efforts are all about. They feel like this is their home, like they're in a garden for kids in a park. This is not about telling them what's right or wrong. This is all about freedom. It's all about creation, art. Art. Nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that at good all. Good luck uh, recycling that tire and turning it into a sandwich. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and by the way, they spent about three seconds on no internet, and then boom, right to recycling. Like it was just another no internet. Oh, let's talk about recycling. <laughs> Unbelievable. Linda Ellaby then recognizes the men responsible for the happiness of the Cuban children. Note how the testimonies here are sprinkled with little quips about the, quote, limitations of their so-called freedom. Maybe Nickelodeon and Linda Ellaby will dive into these limitations somewhere in this news report. Cuban kids seem happy in general. They have a good school system, a vibrant culture, and a strong family structure at the center of their lives. I feel really proud when I see my kids and my family together on the weekends, and I get a good breakfast for them. This is one of the things that make me forget about the limitations we have. We are not a very developed country, and this limits us. Some problems that I see in Cuba that I wish could be changed would be the salary of some jobs. Also, there are some living spaces in Havana that are in bad shape and could be fixed. It would be easier for us to have access to different products and lower prices if Cuba had the possibility to trade with the United States. I would love for this problem to be resolved. I would like to think of that country as a friend. The announcement was surprising when Barack Obama and Raul Castro told us the news. It wasn't just the news of the year, but maybe the whole lifetime for the Cuban people. So I would like to recognize the bravery of Barack Obama and Raul Castro for bringing these two nations together. Well, you know, it's always interesting to hear somebody blame Cuba's poverty on an embargo. It's just, it's just, it's tragic. And by the way, whatever you think about the, the deal that Obama did with Cuba, we don't do that on this show. We don't have an opinion on that. Well, we do, but we're not sharing it with you. Because it doesn't matter. You have yours, we have ours, and again, we don't do opinion. But this is storytelling by Linda Ellerby, and we wanted to get under the storytelling and, and unpack it. And she also talked, she said, uh, it's just a throwaway line, a good school system that they have. <laughs> and I would like her to, to define a good school system, and you know what it is? It's free. Yeah. Not yeah. that it's good or bad or that it's a quality education, but that it's free. Yeah. Our hospitals are great, too. I yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. They're fantastic. And don't it, it, touch look, anything. Don't touch anything. Don't get sick. <laughs> but that staph infection. But it's free. And again, it's a great point by both of you. And Greg, how do you have an education when you can't express yourself? And you can go to prison for what you say. How can that possibly be a good education system, Linda Ellerby? What are you talking about? Now the Cuban children are asked about the possibility of visiting the United States. Or as the first kid says, what he hears people saying about the United States. Because the Cuban Cuban government doesn't allow their citizens the freedom to read or learn about things not approved 
by the communist officials. Again, note how even the tiniest criticism of their communist system or the praises of the United States is always followed almost immediately by communist propaganda. When I hear people talk about the United States, I think of big buildings and technology. I would like to visit New York City because I've heard it's a beautiful place. I think it would be difficult to get visas to go to the United States. The relationship with the United States still has not been fixed. I think I wouldn't change a thing about the Cuban government's role because they have always been teaching us how to keep our minds to Cuban history and how to be faithful to the Cuban roots. To me, socialism is defined as to all and for the good of all. It is everyone being happy with what they have. It means to find a way where we are all equal, or something like that. I think the life of an American kid my age would be different, because maybe they have different possibilities. I'm talking about the economy. So I think that would be a little different from the life we have. I think that if the relationship between the two countries gets better, I think we'll have different possibilities in the future here. I would like to see all these new changes in Cuba, but I wouldn't like to see the achievements of the revolution thrown away. Because of education for free, a health care system for free, the way the Cuban family lives all together, those are achievements that we must preserve. Well, you really want to blow these kids' minds? Send them to Detroit when they get here. <laughs> that didn't get them. Oh, man. And since the Cubans are not allowed to leave their country, Nickelodeon asks them about the possibility of Americans visiting them. I would like American kids to come to Cuba so that way I can meet them and learn about their lives. I would like to ask an American girl how they live. How are the schools over there? What do they do? What would they like to do when they get older? What would he like to change about his country? And what makes him happy there? They can see our culture, the way we live, and they can see that a lot of the things that they are told about our country aren't true. When he's about to leave, I would see his face to see how he liked his time in Cuba. Then I would like him to take me to his country and see if it's the same. And by the way, here's the story, and we'll close with one. Armando Valladares, poet, dissident, winner of the Canterbury Medal from Beckett Fund. And he was thrown into a gulag because he refused to put a sign on his desk at work, I'm with Fidel. Armando heard nightly executions of prisoners of conscience whose last words were, long live Christ, the king, down with communism. He endured beatings, torture, hard labor, malnutrition. Castro offered Armando a political rehabilitation program, but Armando refused. For his defiance, he was thrown into a cell for eight years of isolation. No running water, a hole in the corner for a toilet. When they couldn't break Armando after nearly a decade, Armando's jailers offered him a clean slate if he would just sign a piece of paper renouncing his beliefs and embracing communism. Many others signed. Armando refused. He thought it would be spiritual suicide. Instead, he wrote poetry on cigarette wrappers, paper scraps, using his own blood when necessary. That story, Linda Ellaby, I guess she couldn't figure out where to find it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We like to track down the storytellers who don't necessarily tell you all of the story. 
And in this case, shame on you, Linda Ellaby. You know better. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years, from the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better, and it's the hardest, hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, And my goodness, he can interpret a song, too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack, and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants... Then I knew I had done something funny. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true. I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of, of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, 
he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar, unbeknownst. Well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a big thrill for me and I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that and I had to think of a name overnight and um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met and he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet when he got to W he said Wilder and I said that's the one I want and then for the first name it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the fir- Look Homeward Angel, and the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him, and The Web and the Rock, and You Can't Go Home Again, it was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder, because there, Eli Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman and... Uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the Actors Studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching him a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld, to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels, they're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. 
Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel, Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over this, sing and dance right over it and get onto the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island we went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called Mel and said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. 
No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway. Matinee, taking off my makeup. Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. <laughs> he said, you don't think I forgot, do you? <laughs> Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. He said, but I can't just cast you. You've got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens. There's Mel. He says, come on in. Z. He called Zero Z. This is Gene. Gene, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom... The accountant, played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, in glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... Mark you have 48 the... seconds left. Hurry, hurry. Oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. Nothing? Why can't I... My blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. I'm sorry. I don't like people touching my blue blanket. It's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> Oh, the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal. And Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly and you can hear a pin drop and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up and they all start to applaud. He said, what you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, we, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay, we'll do it. 
And I meant it. He did mean it. And that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. I see. Um, occupation? Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, it's just one of the hardest things to do in comedy, and it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, Young Frankenstein and Beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor and pretty soon an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story celebrating the life of Gene Wilder.
And you're listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was uh, March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two, two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was an heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania? And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And it put an ending on it. Track 29. Yes, yes. And... Uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. But you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him two hundred and. 50,000 or 25,000 or whatever to direct this. And he said, yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't, it's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> well, Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part II. 
Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want to, you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly, who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method actor. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, and then he passed out. And Mel said, it's a sign from God. He called me from the, the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie-comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well, and I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere, not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, 
and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes, because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound, uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. You're blue and you don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. <laughs> Dressed up. This like is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She anything. was always a sucker for a big a, laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I, I'm the best audience. She's my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute right here, 
now specifically, yeah, we're happy. I'm, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, that classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and the breath isn't quite so good or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever, you know, after two, three, four years of that, you start to think of, well, where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors, and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me, they don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States, which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song 
and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. O-H-I-O Maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker 
which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun just a step beyond the rain